how independent were the new IRA and how infiltrated and how being orchestrated by MI5. And that creates questions of the British intelligence agencies as well. They clearly could have wiped this organisation out at any time, but they waited until a specific date to go, pull the plug now, pull him out. If somebody has a family here, he has a home here, he is deeply, deeply embedded within that dissident group to say, it's time to pull him out now. That would have been a major decision. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the new IRA fixer with an unclear past, but despite some red flags, Dennis McFadden managed to infiltrate the terror group and win their trust, all the while reporting back to MI5. For two decades, the Scottish spy worked and lived in Belfast and moonlighted as an ordinary married man who moved in dissident Republican circles. But when he disappeared last August, panic ensued and now 10 suspect dissidents are in the dock, charged after an intricate bugging operation into their group. Today, I'm talking to Alison Morris, crime correspondent and columnist with the Belfast Telegraph, about the two faces of MI5's Chameleon Man. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Was Dennis McFadden an assumed name, or is that his name when he was this Scottish policeman? It is actually his name, and his family would have been quite well known in Scotland. His father, who was quite a religious man, ran a church hall, and it was a church hall where a lot of the sort of Celtic football fans would have held events and parties and do's and fundraisers. So he would have been well known in the family, would have been well known from Scotland. They're a very working class family from Glasgow. So that was his actual name. So he has a whole past as Dennis McFadden. He seems to have been this sort of Walter Mitty character who lived in Glasgow, then left. Now, his family were estranged from him, and at the time when he went missing, the reports that they were approached by MI5 and asked that they want to go into witness protection with them in case they would be at any risk, and they refused. Um, so they refused to, to go with him. But, no, he has had several different guises, although he's always retained the same name. But originally, we know that he had served for a time special constable while he was in Glasgow, Then when he first came to Belfast and there's rumours that he got involved in a business venture with some Scottish gangsters and had to leg it out of Scotland quite quickly, he arrived in Belfast and marched himself into a bar in the city centre and asked basically the manager could he have a job. He had never seen him before, wasn't advertising for staff. He gave him a job and he started working there. At that time that bar would have been frequented by loyalists and a lot of loyalists who had been connected to Johnny Adair's Sea Company. It was at the very end of the 90s and it was just mm. when that sort of rave culture and the, the the sort of, you know, the ecstasy culture and the dance culture was taken off in Belfast and that club would have been synonymous with that. He ran the doormen in that club um, and he infiltrated himself in with that. At that stage, he said he was a paratrooper and said he had, he had flown planes as well for the British Army um, and there were suspicions that he could have well been telling lies and they made... Um, inquiries with some other people who had served with the Parachute Regiment. They were able to check records and say nobody of that name had ever served with him. So do, is he at this stage, like how does this work? Did he kind of sign up to infiltrate a terrorist organisation, whichever one he could infiltrate here, or did he kind of get himself into a position and then he was approached by, or will we ever know? So the question that I think that, you know, that I would like answered and I probably may never find out is, 
was he an agent who was sent to infiltrate these groups or was he this sort of Walter Mitty character who MI5 latched on to and said, well, he'll be a good person to use to infiltrate those groups. When he arrived at Belf- in Belfast, I believe he was already working for the intelligence agencies then. I think his brief stint when he was hanging around the bar with loyalist paramilitaries was part of a training exercise, possibly, to see if he could keep his cover and if he could keep his story mm. more than anything else. At that stage, those loyalists would have been heavily involved in drugs and in feuds with each other, but were not a threat to national security. They mm. wouldn't have really been on MI5's radar, maybe special branches' radar, but not MI5. But he quite quickly moved then to West Belfast and started managing a bar there, and that would have been going now into the very early 2000s. Um, at that point, you already had people who had broken away from Sinn Féin. We know that the McEvitt faction of the Real IRA and what happened in the Omar bomb, all of that. But you also had people who would have been maybe on board in those early days, the ceasefires, who, as the Good Friday Agreement went on, had become more and more disengaged. If you, you know, understand what way things work in places like West Belfast, there are certain clubs which would be associated at that stage with Republicans. They would have been, you know, ex-prisoners clubs, those sort of things. Mm. Those people would have been persona non grata in those clubs. This bar, which is on the Falls Road, would have been somewhere where those people would have congregated and drank. There was two bars quite close to each other, and they would have been, you know, bars of people who were linked to in the NLA. And on some occasions, then, what would have been then the Real IRA would have frequented, and also just people who weren't involved in any paramilitary group, but were just disengaged, you know, ex-prisoners who just wanted nothing to do. And talking, you know, in a relaxed fashion, presumably. Lots of drink, lots of chat. Yeah. Yeah, and lots of friendships were formed, and that was where he formed a close friendship with Tony Catney. Mm. And Tony Catney had been in the... He had been a former professional IRA prisoner. He had been in the real IRA, and then he later became one of the people who helped found the new IRA, and he became close friends with Dennis McFadden. He vouched for him. He brought him everywhere with him. You know, on one occasion, at, at the start, they were saying that TC, as he was called, Tony Catney, his idea was to form this Republican dissident supergroup, which would be the equivalent to the professional IRA, and he wanted to bring everybody under one umbrella. At that stage, Oglin Ahern had, when, when they first started coming onto the scene, and Republican Network for Unity tried to infiltrate them. He brought Dennis McFadden to meetings. People got up and walked out and said they didn't want to be in the same room as him. As before, McFadden. Yeah, before this, McFadden mm. had a brief stint with Sinn Féin, bizarrely mm. up in, in North Antrim. And the, the, um, he was running around with Sinn Féin up there, but while living in a very loyalist estate in Carrickfergus, which, you know, raised concerns, he told members of Sinn Féin that he was an airline pilot um, and he flew for, at that stage, I think it might have been Arlingus, he told them he worked for. Again, they made inquiries and they were like, no one had ever heard of this guy. I think one of their daughters who worked as an hour hostess or something was able to check it out. A simple inquiry, Nonsense, really. like, yeah, yeah. They'd made it all up. Um, but it's interesting because that North Antrim section of Sinn Féin was at that time also, there was a, an, an informer called Paddy Murray who was later masked, who was part of that North Antrim faction at that time. So people thought there was someone who was a bit dodgy. He went on then to be part of the Real IRA as well. Um, and McFadden would have been hanging around up there at that time. He then ended up so coming back So it was kind of just a suspicion of it. He was an, seen as a bit of an outsider and these He was sort bouncing of around are, the place from one group to another. People, mm. you know, people vouched for him and, and said he was okay in Sinn Féin, but he very quickly was sidelined. Um, so someone had obviously caught on that he wasn't all he, he said he was. But and did they know about this sort of stint he'd had with no, the Loyalists? No, with Loyalist paramilitaries, no. no. Nobody had known mm. that until, you know, 
that appeared in, you know, in early January, the Belfast Telegraph, you know, and that was only because of sources who had come forward who knew him from that time and said, you know, this has come back much longer than what people think it is. He was in Belfast long before that. He didn't just arrive, you know, in the mid-2000s. He was here, here a long time before that. They apparently arrived with a, a Scottish woman who he was in a relationship with and she quickly disappeared and he got into a relationship with one of the bar, barmaids who worked, he was much younger than him, who worked in the, the nightclub where he was running the, the bouncers. And like that early part, that unknown early part of when he first arrives is really important in his in who he is because there's two very different people there if he was already employed as a spy or if he sort of sought out employment or sought to see could he embed himself and then go looking Even for with Sinn Féin who were, you know, in the early days, albeit, but involved in the peace process, no one who was a former paratrooper was going to get taken in and taken by the hand and yet that's what he had been telling people mm. in his previous employment that he was. He moved there and told them he was an airline pilot they tricked on he was a Walter Mitty. He was pushed out of there. And then he showed up then with, with Tony Catney. And as part of that, he infiltrated various groups, including at that stage the two men who were convicted of the murder of Constable Carroll and Craig Alvin, who's the first member of the PSNI to have been murdered while on duty here after the changeover. Um, there was two men convicted of that. There was a campaign. People had said that was a miscarriage of justice. And he infiltrated that. He actually was in court the day that they lost their original appeal. He was sitting there with all the dissidents in the dock watching this go by. Everybody thought Dennis was a great fella. And he also claimed at that stage then to say he was a hotel security inspector, was his latest um, employment. And that was what he said took him away from home for long periods of time. So he would have been around for a long period of time. He'd have been attending meetings. He'd have been going to marches. He'd have been hanging around with these distance. And then sometimes he'd have disappeared, maybe for two or three months at a time. But he'd have said, oh, no, I'm a hotel inspector and I travel the world. He said he owned bars in Spain. And then he used that as well to lure some of those dissidents when this came later. So later, you know, TC's plans for a Republican supergroup never came to fruition. Too many egos and people didn't trust mm. all sorts of people. And what year would that have been in? We're coming back to, it would have been when the new RA announced their merger. You're going back then to about 2009, 10. Right. So you're going to those years. Then there was going to be this merger group. At that stage, it didn't have everybody. It was supposed to have the continuity area, Oglin Hearn. Mm. All of those people wanted nothing to do with it. <clears throat> Instead, it had what was the the remnants of the real IRA. It had RAD, which is probably Connection for Drugs, which was basically a vigilante group in Derry who were just you know running around kneecapping people. And then it had what they call independent Republicans from Tyrone. And this is, I suppose, one of the important parts of the story because they were the people who had the weapons. So if you want to start a paramilitary group, you need guns. Mm. The independent Republicans, they called them for Tyrone, were sort of disaffected members of the provisional. They were people who were involved in smuggling. And if you're involved in smuggling and you have those cross-border links, mm -hmm. you can get weapons. They had guns. Um, the real RA weapons are what was left of them. The new RA didn't have them in any, any great numbers because McEvitt obviously had went to jail. He knew where the bulk of it was. And the people who had been allied to him later became allied to Oakland Ahern. And that was where a lot of those weapons went. So at that point in time, I think, you know, Dennis was considered the man to know because mm -hmm. he claimed to know businessmen who were sympathetic to Republican cause who would provide money. Um, but now the question remains is, where was that money coming from? Were MI5 mm. actually funding a lot of these excursions? What was happening in relation to that? 
And on several occasions, he took um, Kevin Barry Murphy, who would have been probably one of the highest up members, who is one of the people who is arrested. He denies any involvement, and must say that. These are ongoing cases. He took him on holiday to Spain, along with their partners, and these all-expenses paid holidays. Murphy came back boasting. They didn't have to put his hand in his pocket the whole time he was there. Um, and obviously, in a different country, and the sunshine and a lot of drink, tongues were a lot looser. Mm. That was clearly the reason for these holidays, but also to gain Murphy's trust, because if you had his trust, you had everyone else's trust. There are people who expressed concerns and said maybe he wasn't all that he should be, but they were quickly pushed to the side. He also then... He was kind of becoming more powerful with the money, I suppose, the connections and... You know, he obviously had a personality. Like, he must have had quite a charming yeah, and, personality and he, as well. He, his house in Glengormley, he had built a bar on the side of the house. So when lockdown came then at the, you know, the at, in March then in 2020, these Republicans, people from Ardoin, who were, you know, supposed to be these sort of staunch Republicans, were in the bar, in the house. The bar is wired for sound, just the same as the houses that he was holding these meetings in. Every word that was said was being recorded and that was being fed back. Mm. Like, interestingly... The ultimate honey trap, really, during yeah. lockdown, drink. Yeah, <laughs> and what he had, um, he, you know, he had kegs that were, like, bought from bars in and around Belfast, which obviously had to shut in a hurry, and so all their alcohol was sitting, and he had went around and bought bars out of the... bought mm. kegs out of the stores of these bars, and said, well, you can't use them, can you sell me them? And these, you know, distant Republicans were sitting loose-talking in his bar for the whole time. Interestingly, and you know, it's only sometimes after the effect you think about things, during that time in those very early days of that lockdown, the police came to my house and told me that I was under death threat from distant Republicans. And at that stage, um, you know, I wasn't, I was working for the Irish News at the time, reported to my boss, and I got a call from someone who acts as a go-between, mm-hmm. you know, who works in a sort of restorative justice type role. And he acts as a go-between between them. And he says, look, I've spoken to those boys and they said, you're not under threat. And I was like, well, the cops have been here twice and they claim that they've intelligence that I am. And his exact words to me were, it's probably been someone sitting in a bar waffling and saying, and it's just been, had been fed back and they've had to tell you. And I said, there's no bars open, they're all locked down. Mm. And he went, oh, you know, they'll find somewhere. And I remember thinking after McFadden came out, was it that bar? Mm-hmm. Was that where I was mm-hmm. being discussed? Mm-hmm. And obviously that would have had to be fed back to MI5 and had to be, had to be told. I will never know an answer to that because the police will never tell me. Um, but that happened around that time as well. That's and then in the, come the August, mm. McFadden goes missing and all hell breaks loose. So people are going up to his house, knocking his door. They're ringing his phone. He's not answering it. They're like, where is Dennis? Has anyone seen him? Does anyone know where he is? And then the raids start. So they arrested what were they are alleging are the leadership of the new IRA. These are people who also all had prominent roles in Syria, the, you know, the political wing of the new IRA. Um, there were people who were very well known, people you know, who would be well known to the media, would be well known in Republican circles, people like Mandy Duffy, people like Sharon Rafferty, you know, people like Kevin Barry Murphy, you know, the Davy Jordans of this world. These are all big hitters in that sort of dissonant world. A lot of them are scooped up. And then it turns out that they had attended two meetings that were organised by McFadden. He had hired these two huge bungalows off Airbnb. On one occasion, he actually left a review on Airbnb after he had left it, saying what a great place it was. And the bungalows were completely and utterly wired for sound. So these they attended these meetings. A lot of the stuff that's been said 
in those meetings has come out of bail hearings, and so we've heard some of it. They discussed procuring weapons. At one stage, they discussed bombing Shannon Airport because they thought that that would go down with people in the Islamic world, because obviously the American army used that, and so we can use that to try and get guns then, you know, from, from people in the Middle East. Why don't we do that? A lot of it was clearly things they talked about kidnapping, you know, a, a senior Republican from Tyrone because they had it in their head that he might have had guns stashed somewhere. And they discussed all sorts of other things while and what we've been told since is, unlike the previous MI5 bug and operations, would have had to use voice recognition to try and link what voice was which. And this occasion, the whole thing not only was wired for sound, but also cameras. And I have been told by people who have seen some of those recordings that you may as well be sitting in the cinema, the quality of it's so clear. On one occasion, people say, let's go out to the hall to have a chat privately. And the hall was bugged, for, bugged as well. The entire house was bugged. And when they got up and leave, they all got up and leave these meetings. Thank Dennis for being so great to find this great house for them. And they're heard saying, going to lift up cups and ice trays full of cigarette butts. And Dennis is like, no, just leave them. I'll clean all those up after you. Just head you on. They go on. Obviously, they're no sooner gone than MI5 sweep in. So the coffee cups are in the possession of MI5, the cigarette butts, the DNA, everything. I'm watching this thing on Netflix at the moment called Undercover. I don't know whether you've seen it. You have to go watch it now. It's a Belgian thing. So it's kind of dubbing. But um, there's this couple and they're placed into a caravan site to kind of get up close and personal with this big ecstasy dealer who's super paranoid and everyone around him is super paranoid and they're sort of introduced as these new neighbours and you know the first series is definitely really good and sort of the jury's out in the second but you know it strikes me while this is drama those people in the dissident organisations should be really paranoid about anybody, anyone who's organising meetings, anybody who's coming into their company. They've been done time and again by this same kind of uh, investigation technique, which is embedding somebody within them. Um, where was their paranoia? Like, uh, well, they, they're completely McFadden? relaxed, apparently, in these recordings. They discuss what rank they hold within the organisation. They discuss all sorts, <coughs> all sorts of issues, completely unprompted, by the way. You know, Dennis McFadden isn't prompting them to say any any of this. But, you know, he remains like this, completely cool as a cucumber. Nobody had said that he ever appeared that he was nervous or he felt that he was about to be exposed throughout the whole time that he was with them. There aren't that many photographs of him, which is interesting. Yeah, that was another thing he said. He said said away from, he would have attended protests, but always hung down at the sort of back end. When he was at those protests, he maybe wouldn't have stood beside somebody who was well-known, who he knew the press would have been taking pictures of. Um, you know, so there was relatively few photographs that exist. But again, of him. was that not something there that would raise no, a red flag? Yeah, if you no were... social media and no social media for the wife, who was a relatively young woman as well. She didn't exist on social media either, which you imagine would have been red flags. And had somebody just went back and said, you know, to members of Sinn Féin at that mm-hmm. stage, what happened with him that assembly told us he was an airline pilot and he wasn't. Um, but no, that seemed to have been completely trusting. And you have to, I think that the dynamic behind that is the Tony Catney connection because mm-hmm. Tony Catney was considered within those distant Republican circles. Remember, a lot of them are new recruits. Now, some of them are ex-professionals, but some of them would have been young men who'd have been brought in. And in terms of that, TC would have been, you know, legendary. He was, you know, this veteran of Republicanism. So it's almost like that mafia thing. If he puts his hand on your shoulder and says, he's okay, he's okay. And mm. that was... Originally, Harry and he died, of course. Yeah, he died of cancer, 
long before any of, of this happened. So, and McFadden know, would have been a loyal sort of by his side. McFadden as he stayed was in his in house his with him. Mm. You know, he used to live with him at one stage. He was, you know, with him on his deathbed. You know, his family said when he'd come out that they were more devastated than anyone. They considered him an uncle. They thought he was a close friend. Um, and all that time, he was clearly an MI5 operative on quite a high level. MI5 operative, you know, there's things I suppose that maybe won't be newsworthy in terms of the security journalist Elma, but that I think about all the time. Mm. The wife, did she know she was living with an agent when he came in and said to her that day, "Pack your bags." Was she sticks. local or did she come? Yeah, from, no, from she, was lo- she, she was local. She was local. And has I, she been identified? No, and she has taken her child, a very young child, and she has gone. Mm. Um, and but you she know, leaves family behind here somewhere. Quite, quite maybe. recently, the you know we've had that the big. Um, case in England that was running through the Old Bailey with a woman who had been trapped by agents who had infiltrated Greenpeace, that had infiltrated yes. all of those organisations. And in some cases, these men had lived for two or three years with these women and had children to them. Mm-hmm. Well, this man had lived with this woman for almost two decades. And I don't know whether she was a aware. willing partner in that mm. and aware of that. And so was quite happy to get up sticks and go into witness protection and never be seen again. But Mm. As far as I know, you know, I mean, it would take some yeah. strong character to be aware of what was going on and hold her nerve, wouldn't it? And she wasn't, you know, from all, mm. all, you know, I think that she was quite weak as far as I know. And anyone who knew her said he, what he would have done is he would have not encouraged people to speak to her. He would have made sure she wasn't around when he was having the, you know, people were drinking in the house. She wouldn't have been sitting with them. He rarely took her to any sort of events with them, but he did take her on the, the holidays when she went with her were Kevin Barry Murphy, which would lead me to believe that maybe she wasn't aware because she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would have willingly bought into that. But at the same time too, there are stories that I think, you know, that when this eventually comes out, so far the court papers have said that he won't be called as a witness. Hmm. Now, the defence... There's are, a big trial coming in, in yeah, the trial, this year or next. The trial would be, mm-hmm. you know, given the slow way justice turns here, I would advise in that trial taking place next five years. I think it was, <laughs> it was great. But I mean, the trial will eventually take place the, the issue for that is, do the defence insist that he's called to try and push this entrapment line? Mm. Well, they could be getting themselves in worse trouble by calling him in that case. The prosecution don't seem to think that they need him. They seem to think that there is so much evidence against these people that they'll not need it. And while all of them are pleading not guilty, there has been all sorts of fractions taking place within the prison. So we have seen three prisoners, one through their solicitor and two actually in person sitting in the High Court, who have denounced violence and disavowed themselves and said they no longer want anything to do with it um, during bail hearings. Paddy McDade was granted bail. Joe Barr was denied bail. He went back to his cell and was told to pack his stuff and get off the wing. He was no longer welcome on the Republican wing. You know, we're hearing that the sort of faction in Derry has more or less disassociated itself with other parts. They put out a statement at, at uh, the New Year saying that they were far from beaten and that they were undefeated and that they were, you know, going to, you know, come back and they could strike at any time. And, you know, other Republicans that I spoke to at the time were like, not to do comical alley from the Iraq war. They were like, you know, as the tanks were rolling into Baghdad, he was saying, we're undefeated. And they're like, you know, these people are finished, mm. but finished by their own hand. Mm. You know, when you think of the, the level of infiltration and also the level of incompetence and just stupidity that it takes to get yourself in to a situation like that, no one, as you say, how many people in the past have been stung by those MI5 type situations, how many informers have infiltrated those organisations, how that should always be key, that security element. But then Dennis was basically in charge of the security, so 
Else but like even from, you know, our sm- way smaller world as crime journalists, like if somebody, you know, if you can't find somebody's footprint on social media, what happens in your head? Well, if somebody lands in, lands into me and says, you know, I have this great story, this great contact, I need to know who they are. Mm. And, you know, I need to trace them back to the famine before I'm trusting them with my oh, secrets. You know, exactly, show yeah. me who you are and show yeah. me who we belong to. Show me who or your family are. Or let me be able to check out yeah. who you are and what you're... I mean, to me, when somebody doesn't exist, everybody's yeah. there. When they don't exist, it is such a red flag. And I immediately think they're telling me lies. And it, But it was his name and he was from Scotland. And, you know, at some stage he was also not just buying, you know, with fancy holidays to Spain, but with tickets to go and see, see Celtic. Um, with accommodation, you know, he was paying for all sorts of things. There's one of the people who has been charged is um, a doctor, a Palestinian doctor who was living in Glasgow. Um, and he claims that he was entrapped, and his story is so curious. Isam Basilat, you call him, and what he claims and has claimed during bail hearings is that he had spoken at a um, Surah Ardesh in Nuri, and then Dennis McFadden landed randomly at his house where he was living, I think he was living in Edinburgh, and said, I want you to come and speak at this meeting. He said, no, I can't, I have too much work on, I have a lot going on. But at the same time, he was taking his children on holiday to Dubai. One of their passports had expired. He rang the passport office to say if he could get and get a rush on it. Was told that he could get it. And he could get it straight away, or he could wait on it. But the quickest way to get it was to pick it up from the passport office in Belfast. I'm not sure why someone in Scotland would be picking their passport up in Belfast. Mm-hmm. He claims he has has messages from the passport office saying he can pick his passport up in Belfast the next day. Dennis McFadden randomly lands at his door and says, you know, I'll pay for all your flights, I'll pay for your accommodation. The doctor claims he thought, well, I'll go and collect the passport. He took his children with him. So he arrives in Belfast with his children. He's picked up at the airport by Dennis McFadden. He takes him to a property around beside the university to a sort of Airbnb. He comes to collect him and says, we're going to the meeting. He has his children with him. I think the one, the youngest, the old eldest is like a sort of young teenager. He said, well, I can't leave them here on their own. And he said, no, it's okay. I have someone come and mind them and bring them food. This random woman, who I assume also worked for MI5, arrives into the house with food for the children. And then he starts driving. And the doctor said he thought he was going to a meeting in Belfast. And obviously he's going to a house in Tyrone, driving through the country. He's claiming that he said, where on earth are we going? I thought I was going to do a public meeting in Belfast. He's like, oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry, I have someone matching your kids for you. And then he landed into this house. Now, he's claiming all he talked about was the situation in the Middle East, the situation in Palestine, the conflict there, all of that. Nothing that he says he wouldn't have discussed at a public meeting. But he is now also charged in connection with it as well. Mm. Now, there could well be other stuff that comes out in relation to the doctor. But you'd imagine there is an awful lot of so this was quite late on that that happened. I mean, yeah. this was when he, this he was, was the second meeting. So the, the first meeting had already taken mm. place. Then the second meeting takes place, and the doctor claims that he went to great lengths mm-hmm. to get him from Scotland to this meeting. With such lengths that he offered to pay for everything. I'm really not sure. I'm assuming the doctor at some stage picked a passport up from the passport office in Belfast. He has been bailed as well because he's been very unwell and taking heart attacks in prison. Um, 
but I mean, his is obviously his career as a GP is I mean, now over. Handed into you with this sort of script. Now you'd be with your red pen, wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, not credible, not credible. No, I mean, if you credible. tried to turn this into some sort of Netflix yeah. drama, they'd say we're going to have to make it slightly more realistic yeah. than it wouldn't is they? because nobody's ever going to fall for this but in the you, real world. But your read on it is that McFadden came and those earlier kind of his attempts to maybe infiltrate the loyalists, his attempts to maybe infiltrate in Sinn Féin, they were sort of tests to see how he'd get on. He managed to kind of come out of them without really being the he talk of the town. Scaled, yeah, I mean, he didn't manage, you know, they would have had no interest in, MI5 would have had no interest in loyalist paramilitaries. They'd been happy to leave that to the at that stage, you know, to the, the police and the special branch. They were basically drug dealing and feuding with each other. Mm. You know, at that point, they weren't a threat to what they call national security. So they weren't attacking police or army. So therefore, that takes them out of MI5's radar. MI5 would have been interested at that stage. I'm still assuming in what provisional Sinn Féin were doing because it was the very early days of the peace process and there was always the chance that the wheels might have fell off that. So they would have been taking an interest in that. But they were more interested in the sort of emergence of these dissident groups and this idea that there was going to be this super group, you know, this mm, rival. Mm. But then you have to wonder, and I do wonder all the time, sometimes when you think of Northern Ireland, you think of what's been going on here. Was it like, a you know, a cat playing with a mouse? You know, we've heard and we've heard from like retired intelligence operatives that Northern Ireland was used as a training ground for the intelligence service for them when they have to go and actually play with the big boys who, you know, the Islamic terrorists and they train and use techniques and infiltration techniques here to test them out and see how they work and see how they float. Um, but I mean, if there was funding coming from McFadden, if a lot of this was being organised by McFadden, how independent were the new IRA and how infiltrated and how being orchestrated by MI5, and that creates questions of the British intelligence agencies as well. They clearly could have wiped this organisation out at any time, mm -hmm. but they waited until a specific date to go pull the plug now, pull him out, and to pull him out would have been a big decision. I imagine if you have someone so deeply, so, so embedded, <coughs> so deeply, and for somebody who has a family here, he has a home here, he is deeply, deeply embedded within that dissident group to say, it's time to pull him out now, it's time to pull the plug on this. You know, that would have been a major decision. And, and there's no suggestion anybody was becoming suspicious and there was any danger no, to him? No, no. there are people with hindsight who now claim, oh, I knew that boy was dodgy, but they never said it at the time and that's the issue, you know. I saw in a headline about a, an article you were writing about him that he was the tea boy. So included in these meetings was he was so relaxed, he was offering to make tea for all these... Yeah, and he cleaned up afterwards. But I remember every single one of those teacups is now evidence because every single one of them has the DNA of other people. There are also questions about people who have not been arrested. There were people at those meetings who were known to be at those meetings, mm. who were present at those meetings, who one person who drove people to those meetings who have never even been arrested and questioned. Um, you know, and so there remains, you know, a question mark over the head of what exactly was going on, why were some people taken out and other people have been left in place as well. But what that might have been done and the reason why that might have been done is created so much paranoia mm. within that group. That group is finished. The new is done. You know, there's no point in saying, no matter how many statements that I'd say they are, they're completely and utterly finished. But even what's left of them in the small little rump that's left, they're so paranoid and so paranoid about each other. Um, and I think, you know, to that effect, you know, the, the MI5 would consider the operation a success, mm. regardless of the convictions, because whether those convictions happen or not, they have completely disrupted mm. that organisation and disrupted, disrupted it to a point where it'll never come back again. And you have senior members of, you know, the political wing of that organisation, people who are charged, people like Paddy McDade, people like Joe Barr, who would have been, you know, committed, committed Republicans 
sitting in the high court and saying to a high court judge, I am finished. I am done with this. I disavow it. I want nothing more to do with it. You know, that's me finished. Um, and so to that end, it definitely served its purpose. And what about the picture of McFadden? There's a picture of McFadden at the Belfast Telegraph actually had, which was at him of at a, a protest, but that was one of the rare ones. And he was, you know, at that stage... Obviously, when this story emerged, you went looking through Everybody went archive. looking, and it didn't prove the most easiest. So I think at this point, we have maybe two photographs of him that exist, mm. but he wasn't a man for getting his picture taken, which you would have thought when there was, you know, these big Republican fundraisers that took place in bars be they in Derry, be they in Tyrone, be they in North Belfast, that someone would have said, you know, Dennis, come on, present this plaque or, you know, come mm. and give, you know, hand over this cheque and this collect money for the prisoners and we're doing a raffle and all of those sort of things. But he managed to stay out of a load of the, the photographs. There are some pictures of him which, you know, that I know that exist of him when he's out in a sort of more relaxed mode with some mm. of these people. And, you know, they may well present themselves in a future news story. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) I've no doubt. But in the meantime, we do have an image of him now. Yeah. And the story has broken what he was doing. So where can he go? And what can he do? He's obviously of no use, presumably, going forward now. Well, they they owe him a lifetime of Mm. of comfortable living now. You know, anyone who was infiltrated um, working for MI5 for over 20 years, which he was, I'm assuming... You get the equivalent of a pension. You get a new identity. You get a new place to live. Um, you know, I have spoken to, to some people who say that the most common place for to take people like that would be to France, and then sometimes they move on from there because you can anonymously jump on a ferry and mm. make your way to France and then wherever life takes them. But I'm ashamed I've had to significantly change what he looks like. He will not be able to go to particularly touristy parts of Europe because in case he bumps in, to someone who remembers him from that time, we never know. He may appear at some stage, but remember, you know, if you think back to the RAs, you know, biggest infiltrator in, in Freddie Scapatitia and Steak Knife, he disappeared and half the journalists in the whole Western world were chasing around Italy and all sorts of places looking for him and no one mm. could find him at the time um, until he, he resurfaced. Um, so, you know, it is easy for someone to disappear, but where he is, who knows? And I mean, you really need to be a certain type of a character to be able to do that he seems to have been someone who could adapt into different personalities quite easily and someone who can infiltrate different companies quite easily and be the centre of that company so clearly quite a sociable person clearly mm. quite a likeable person but I mean I have no need to tell you you do the same job as me for people to become leader, whether that be leaders of paramilitary groups or leaders of criminal gangs or leaders of anything, they have to be charismatic because people wouldn't follow them otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, people would not trust them. People wouldn't blindly follow them around, putting their lives at risk if they weren't charismatic. So that's often the people you find who manage to get themselves into these positions. So he was mm. clearly someone of that nature. An incredible story, Alison. And, um, you know, the trial, hopefully it'll be sooner than five years, as you predict. Um, well, <laughs> I think I'd be happy if it was in, in five years. Well, for comparison, Colin, Colin Duffy, Alex McCrory and Harry Fitzsimmons are being trialled in this case for recordings that were taken by MI5, although they're voice recordings. And this is that trial is currently in its ninth year with no sign of, of ever coming to a conclusion. The technology will have actually become like completely deplete by the time. We see since, since they were charged and since now and since yeah. McFadden case, the technology cause appears to have considerably got better. Yeah. Absolutely. Alison, thank you very much. 
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.